and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never black his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Picture the scene. It is a special day in the city of Sardis to a select group. To many, it's just another day in the city. But to a group, specific group of people in that city, this is not just some day. It's the Lord's Day. And these brothers and sisters in Christ will meet together in some place of assembly to sing praise to the high name of God and to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to commune and fellowship with one another. The expectation is that their regular order of service, whatever that would look like to them, would take place that day, but they are in for a surprise. A guest has arrived with a letter. It is reviewed by maybe the pastor and other leaders of the church and verified for its authenticity. And this messenger will read this letter to the church during their assembly. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the hand of the beloved apostle John. And it has been delivered to them to hear. The pastor of the church is maybe proud that this kind of special correspondence comes to his church. The members are eager to hear what the contents of this letter will say. There is full attention. As the reading begins, what we know as chapter 1, with this glorious picture of the majesty and the supremacy and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is a series of letters 
local churches in Asia Minor. They hear the rebuke the Lord gives to the church at Ephesus, which had abandoned its first love. They hear the comfort the Lord has given to the church at Smyrna that is facing a time of persecution. They hear the confrontation the Lord has with the church at Pergamon who has compromised with the world. But none of these letters raise any alarm for this congregation at Sardis. They expect that the Lord will have good things to say about them just like everyone else does in the community. Imagine how shocked that congregation was when this reading gets to the specific address the Lord has for them. When the Lord says in verse number one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This letter is a little different than the previous letters. There are problems in these other churches, but no enemy is mentioned here. The issue with this church is not Satan or the threats of the government or false teachers and their corruption. The problem with this church is this church. They have no one else to point to, no one else to blame, no one else to accuse for their problem. They are rebuked because there is a problem within. They have a name, they have a reputation to be alive, but this is a church, Jesus says, that is dead. What we have in this letter is a warning against nominal Christianity. A faith that is in name only. One that professes a thing but lives something else in reality. Consider four wake-up calls the Lord Jesus gives to this dead church. It begins with the revelation of the Lord. In these letters, as we have seen, they begin with the Lord addressing the angel or messenger of that particular church. Again, this angel or messenger may represent a human being or a supernatural being. We are not sure. But after identifying the recipient of the letter, the Lord then identifies himself in some specific and unique way, some particular way to each of the churches. And here, we find the same 
beginning to this letter to the church at Sardis. And to the angel of the church, verse 1, in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This letter begins with a declaration of the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has or holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This reference to the seven spirits of God draws us back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This reference to the seven spirits is a reference specifically to the Holy Spirit. This seven spirits represents the fullness of the Spirit, the completeness of the Spirit's work and power and energy. Jesus is the one who on one hand has the seven spirits of God, and then on the other hand, he has the seven stars. Again, this draws us back to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, particularly in verse 16, John says in his right hand, he held seven stars. The final verse of chapter 1, verse 20, explains that as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Jesus introduces himself to this church as the one who has the seven spirits of God and has the seven stars. This church in which he will confront for being spiritually dead needs revival. And the language with which the Lord introduces himself is meant to make it clear that that revival comes only through the Lord himself. There is nothing this church can do in its own strength and wisdom and resources to fix what is wrong with it. Ultimately, the revival this church needs comes from the Lord himself. It comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. But after this revelation of the Lord, consider the rebuke of the church. And the rebuke of the church is stated before you get out of verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Well, here we are again. There are those inside the church who may have a perspective on the church. There are those we will see on the outside of this church that has some perspective, some opinion about the church, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, declares, I know your works. I know the truth about you. 
I know the reality about who you are and what you have done. I know you are living off of a reputation. People think you are something, but I know. I was a daddy's boy, and I just wanted to be with my dad wherever he was going, and it just felt like being with him was just a perpetual classroom. He was always teaching me something. And on a few occasions, he would teach me something simple that to me was so profound. I would say, wow, Dad, I never knew that. And there were a few times when my dad gently but with a sting said, son, there's enough you don't know to start a brand new world. <laughs> and he's, he's right. There's enough we don't know to create a whole universe from the stuff we don't know. This is why Proverbs 3 and 5 advises, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, if I may paraphrase. Do not depend on what you think you know. Jesus said, I'm the one that I know. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation. And if you ask, those in the city of Sardis about this church, they'll say a lot of positive things. Quite possibly this church is known in other cities. And if you ask others who don't even live in the city, they'll have a lot of positive things to say. You, 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 have, a, you have a reputation for being a, a, a church that is alive and healthy and vibrant strong. Proverbs 22 verse 1 tells us that having a good name is better than having a whole lot of money. So there is a real sense in which, though this is no real commendation, in fact, in the previous letters before the Lord gives a rebuke, he Give some commendation, but there's no real thing here to commend about this church. This is the best that he can give them. You, you have a name to be alive. There's a sense in which, in and of itself, there's no bad thing. It's a good thing for a church to have a good reputation. Slightly over a decade ago, the Lord drug me kicking and screaming to, to Jacksonville from my home in Los Angeles to take a church full of wonderful people, but they were hurt and shocked and embarrassed because of a moral failure of the pastor. The church had a, has had as well, a weekly television broadcast. And for maybe the first year and a half of my pastorate, we would have a broadcast on Sunday mornings where I would preach the gospel and as soon as my sermon finished and the broadcast went off, they would have on Sunday mornings breaking news about the court case of my predecessor. I remember my first Easter there and encouraging the staff to invite lost people to, to come to church. 
one of the staff members said, Pastor, we can't do that. The moment we say what church we attend, people turn us off. I'm 10 years in now, and I'm, if you ask me about what God is up to there, I think one of the greatest things is that in the passing of these years, when the name of our church comes up in the city, those bad things are not the first things people know about us. And that's a gracious work of God. There's nothing wrong with having a good reputation. That's a good thing. The problem here is that's all this church had. There was reputation that didn't line up with reality. It is a shame when reputation is not consistent with reality, and that's all that you have. It's just a name, but there's no reality to it. There's a faulty reputation here. He says you have a name to be alive, but in, in truth, you are, you are dead. The language of death is as severe as you can get, right? This is the language used to describe who and what we are without the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 and 1, Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and in sin. That metaphor for death, as Paul uses it there, has two implications. It, it has the implication of separation from God and inability. Sin separates us from God, and there is nothing we can do to fix what our sins have broken. Here, Jesus confronts a church that has a reputation for being healthy and strong and vibrant, but he says, you are, you are actually dead. He doesn't linger to elaborate. And I think the language here is sufficient to point out a warning about nominal Christianity. These are people who are walking in a false presumption of salvation. They pretend to be something that they are not. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns against spiritual counterfeits, saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. For on that day, there will be many. That's the disturbing statement in that passage. At the final inspection, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many marvelous works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Jesus is clear. You could be a smashing success with man and a horrible failure with God. You could be doing things that people think are so great and stand before the Lord and have to introduce yourself. I never knew you. Here is a church that has a reputation for being alive, but, but they are dead. There, there is reputation, but no reality. One of the key parables of Jesus that is often overlooked is the parable of the haunted house, if you will, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. where an unclean spirit departs out of a man going into dry places looking for rest. And after the unclean spirit departs, the, 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 the heart of the man, which is pictured as a house, is swept and garnished. It's cleaned and decorated. When that unclean spirit cannot find a place of rest, he returns. And this house looks totally different, right? But his key still works. It is clean, it is decorated, but it is empty. And he gets seven unclean spirits worse than himself and retakes the house and the end of the man is Worse than the first. This is Jesus' rebuke of religious hypocrisy. Where he is saying to the people, you, you have cleansed yourself from past idolatry and immorality, but, but you are empty. Clean and decorated, but no reality on the inside. Reputation without reality. I believe this is what Jesus warns of when he says to this church, you are dead. Your temptation is to spend a lot of time with, with that statement. But I think the significance of it is in the contrast. You have a reputation for being alive. There, there is something you think you are and people think you are, but, but I know what you are. And the reputation doesn't line up with reality. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Notice thirdly, the requirements for revival. It is said that uh, anything dead should be buried. Thank God Jesus doesn't think that way. He gives instructions for revival, particularly five instructions. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If 
you will not wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Listen to these instructions Jesus gives to issue a wake-up call to this dead church. He first just says, wake up. Shifting metaphors to, to in a sense here, this dead church is a sleeping church. And he calls them forth to wake up. I can't read this and without thinking of the runaway prophet Jonah. Who goes the opposite direction from what the Lord has commanded. And while he is calmly sailing into rebellion, a storm breaks out at sea. You remember, <laughs> the captain in this pagan ship calls an all-ship prayer meeting. And, and he says, I don't care who your God is. Whoever your God is, check in with him <laughs> before it's too late. And the only one who knows the true and living God is fast asleep. Wake up, says the Lord, and strengthen, secondly, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He has called them dead in verse 1, and now he's warning them about near-death realities. And with urgency, he bids them to strengthen what remains and is about to die. And he explains why. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. I think this might be a clear hint to some of the realities. There is this divided loyalty and incomplete obedience. You need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Because I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Mama was cleaning up the kitchen that afternoon, preparing for dinner. Out her kitchen window, she sees her son running in from the backyard to get a pre-dinner snack. She yells out the window, Johnny, don't come this way. Go around front. Your dad just painted the back steps. And without breaking a stride, Johnny yells back at his mom, don't worry, mama, I'll be careful. Knowing her son, she warns again, and he continues his stride. I'll be careful until mom yells out that window as loudly, as boldly, and as clearly as she can. Johnny, listen to me. I said, don't go this way. Go around front. I don't want your carefulness. I want your obedience. Jesus says, you can't find life being careful in disobedience. You need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Verse 3, remember. 
Remember then what you received and heard for spiritual progress. There are some things you must forget, right? Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have already attained it, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead and straining forward, forgetting what is behind, that is, and straining for what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. For spiritual progress, there are some things that you must forget. And in that context of Philippians 3, for the record, the things that Paul is forgetting are the realities of his pre-Christian life, verses 5 and 6, that he would have once listed as a resume list. He's not trying to forget the bad. He's trying to forget the good. There are some things you must forget for the sake of spiritual progress, but there are some things you must remember. Remember what you have received from God in his gracious salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you have heard in the message of the gospel. We said earlier in the church at Ephesus and the letter Jesus gives to them that remembrance aids revival. If you're going to be Restored. If you're going to wake up, if he says you've, you've got to remember what you've received and what you've heard. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 20, Moses using similar language issues the same kind of instruction to the people of Israel. In that passage, he just basically warns them, do not forget God when life gets good. When you go into the promised land of Canaan and you, you enjoy the blessings of the land, do not forget the God that brought you and, and so fail to obey his commandments. Don't forget God when life gets good. You got to read that Deuteronomy 8. It's an humbling, humbling st uh, statement there he makes. When you, when you get to the blessings of Canaan, don't forget while you have vineyards and milk and honey, don't forget when the Lord fed you every day, manna from on high. And when your hem or your garments didn't wear out and the soles of your shoes... When you get into that promised land, as my Aunt Debbie would say, don't get new. And forget the God that brought you over. This is a church that has forgotten what they have received and what they have heard. And he says, remember then what you received and what you've heard. Keep it. And repent. Here again is this call to repentance, a change of 
mind that results in a change of attitude and is demonstrated in a change of behavior. He again calls this church, as he has done previously, to, to make a U-turn. You, you need to acknowledge that God's way is right and your way is wrong. Stop going your way and make a U-turn and, and go God's way. Again, this commandment from God is the enablement of God. You can begin again. With stern words, we have a picture of grace. You can begin again. We've mentioned over the course of our time together, pastors that may be here, faithful Christians who've read this, study that, know that, but there may be those of you here. You are here invited by a friend and you've never personally trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that God is holy and we are not. And every one of us will have to answer to God for how we have lived our lives and we have all fallen short as sinners of the glory of God and there is nothing we can do to reach God's righteous standards. There's no good thing in us to commend to God. Without divine intervention, without God's help, without God graciously stepping in, we are doomed sinners on a collision course with divine judgment and eternal wrath. And he says to the sinner, repent. This call to repentance, the call of God to repent is a, is a picture of his grace and his mercy toward us. You, you can repent. You can come to God. He, by his grace, he, by his mercy, has provided all that is needed for your salvation. Yes, Ephesians 2 and 1 says, without Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. But a few verses later in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. This is the news this whole weekend is about. It's good news. Well, it's Bad news, worse news, good news, and then best news. <laughs> the, the, the bad news is that we are sinners and our sin has separated us from God. The worst news is that there is nothing we can do to fix what our sin has broken. The good news is that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to be our substitute. He died at the cross to pay for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And the best news is, friend, today if you run to the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of God, you can have free forgiveness, new life, and eternal hope. He says, repent. Repent. Repent or else. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There are allusions here to the reality of the history of Sardis. Where enemies snuck in unaware and overtook them. Here, using language Jesus uses in the Gospels, he threatens to come like a thief. This is not about the second coming. This is a conditional factor here. Jesus will come again. But here, this is a specific warning to those in this church. I will come like a thief if you do not wake up and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Notice Quickly and finally, the reassurance to the faithful. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To the one who conquers. To the one who is victorious. To the one who prevails. To the one who overcomes. Again, the implication of that term is victory after struggle. The Lord assures that those who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments, referring back to verse 4. Not by anything that we do, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and for where have they come? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are not counted worthy before God by anything we do. We wear white garments because of the blood of Jesus Christ that pays it all. To the one who overcomes, you'll be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Verse 6, he'll say again, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in black church, black Baptist church. That doesn't mean much because I grew up in a church, I believe what you believe. The, the difference is, 
the church I grew up in is a lot louder about what we believe. <laughs> and uh, well, I just grew up in church and the, the, the sermon was expected to be not a monologue but a dialogue <laughs> between pulpit and, and pew. And when I grew up in church, I, I noted listening to the preachers that they had help me lines. That's what I, that's what I, that's what I called them. If the church was too quiet and the preacher wanted them to help him, they, they had help me lines is what I called them. My father had help me lines. If my daddy was preaching and it was too quiet, my daddy would say, I wish I had a praying house. Is what my daddy would say. Or if the church was too quiet and he was preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, and no one was saying anything back, my daddy would ask, am I right about it? And he expected them to say something back. That's what they'd, and I'm, I, I'd always pay attention when he'd say, am I right about it? Because I was curious what would happen if somebody stood up, no, nah, Reverend, you ain't right about that. <laughs> that never happened, though. And often, my daddy would say, as he was preaching, do you hear me? Church, do you hear me? If he said something good about Jesus and they didn't say nothing back, he said, y'all don't hear me. <laughs> that kind of language, though, was just his assumption that, that if, you, if you've heard this truth, there should be some response. That's how Jesus preached. He expected there to be a response of the life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. One of the first times Jesus in record uses this is in Matthew 13, verse 9. It is preceded by the parable of the sower. He says... A certain man went out and sold his seed. Some fell along the path and birds swooped down and ate it. Some fell on rocky ground. It, it, got, it broke ground but didn't get deep enough and it sprouted quickly and the sun shined on it and it withered away. Some fell among thorns and as it grew, the weedy thorns choked the nutrients so that it never got a chance to bear fruit. And some fell on good ground, producing fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then he says, he that has ears, let him hear. There, in that parable, Jesus is encouraging his disciples. They have followed this one who they believe to be the Messiah, but everywhere they go, they meet rejection. And in that parable, Jesus wants to make it clear there's nothing wrong with the seed. It is alive and powerful and life-transforming. Nothing wrong with the seed, but there is something wrong with the soil. You can have a hard heart or a superficial heart, or a divided heart. 
May the Lord give us receptive hearts. So that as we hear his word to the church this weekend, we'll, we'll do more than just get a notebook full of notes. But that we'd bear fruit to his glory. Father, in the name of Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. and We give you praise for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Help us, we pray, to be doers of your word and not hearers only so that we don't deceive ourselves. Help us to do more than just study Sardis and Laodicea and Ephesus. May, may the mirror ministry of your word do its work in our hearts so that we see ourselves as we truly are. Repent of our sins and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. Grant that as a result of our time together this weekend, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever. Amen.